0: This week, on Dig Me Out. It out, take it out. It's you, oh, it's with your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Manici.
1: Jay, this week we're kicking off a new roundtable series... I haven't come up with the official title yet. I'll have to do that once I actually commit this to our um website. It's either gonna be called Origins or 90s Origins or something like that. We decided to add a at a once a year new roundtable discussion about we're gonna talk about a band that started in the nineties under the radar. Maybe wasn't, you know, the the darling that they are now, but now in the two thousands, they they turn into a massive band that everybody knows. There's a, quite a few options. We'll talk about you know future episodes. We get to the end of the podcast, Jay. This week we're talking about Spoon.
2: Awesome, one of I my know. favorite bands.
1: Yeah, and and you were uh, on the Spoon train, or <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to put it. Yeah. yeah, I I think you were into Spoon like before anybody I knew. Uh, yeah. Wh- wh- how did you find them?
2: Uh, this was an Napster band for me, so I, I got into Napster I think in '98 <laughs> and just started downloading shitloads of bands that I had n- never heard of in my life, um, just because you could find if you search for something you knew you would end up on somebody's uh, account that you could start to just poke around and say well if they have this band that i like they probably have some other bands so you just blindly download stuff so i downloaded telephono and series of sneaks probably right around when series of sneaks came out because it was 98 okay. um and just was blown away i just it was one of those things where i guess Similar to you know buying something in a director store based on the album cover and never hearing it just because you thought the album cover was cool, it was that kind of experience of sure n- having no idea who this band was and then getting into uh, the, those two records.
1: Good job helping you know speed the downfall of the music industry there by using that. Say, actually, uh, Jay, I mean, uh, Jay,
2: well, with, without it, I wouldn't have bought like the other six albums they put out. So, showing <laughs> no,
0: Jay, Jay his age because he was using Napster and not Soulseek.
1: Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I was more a lime wire guy myself, but uh, that was a little bit later. Uh, that voice you heard was one of our guests for this episode. He's been on the show many a time. He's going to be getting the fitted with a dig me out robe soon. Through, that goes to all of our six timers that, uh, have, w- which right now there are like five people going, wait a minute. Eric Grubbs is like, you owe me a robe. Uh, yeah. Jim Copany, Welcome back to the show. Happy to be back. We also have a new guest joining us. Uh, actually, is, is part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode because I read his article uh, in Paste back from uh, last year. I think it was March of last year, uh, ranking Spoon's albums. And I was like, well, this is perfect. This is what we need to talk about, Spoon albums. So joining us from... Uh, I don't think we've ever had a guest on from Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama. Read Strength, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, hey. Yeah, so happy to be here. Um I, you know, I've been a Spoon fan for forever. I think Spoon is like my first favorite band. So to ran- to randomly get a Twitter DM from you and like, "Hey man, you want to be in a Spoon podcast?" I'm like, "Yes, absolutely. This is what my whole <laughs> life has been leading up to, of course." <laughs>
2: well it's all downhill from here yeah man until i get my road, that is yeah slow down you got a couple more episodes to do
1: yeah that's right (laughs) right we need to figure out how we can uh integrate spoon into some other ones and uh make our resident spoon expert
3: oh man oh please my stars and garters (laughs) geez first first up pipe down dude you you got a little bit to go too. you got the the Roads. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll try to be humble, as Kendrick would say.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about Spoon. First, briefly, their history. I, I, a lot of people already know about Spoon, but they're from Austin, Texas. They're primarily composed of Brit Daniel on vocals and guitar and then Jim Eno on drums. They've been through a number of other members of the band. At the formation of the band, you had uh, Greg Wilson, and Andy McGuire, Greg Wilson on guitar, Andy McGuire on bass. And then they had a series of bass players throughout the early part of the decade, including John Croslin and Scott Adar. And then John Zarbo was the bass player for quite a long time, um, replaced briefly by Roman Kubler. And now Rob Pope is the bass player. And then Eric Harvey took over the second guitar duties. They didn't have a second guitarist for probably about 10 years. And then Eric Harvey took over also doing keyboards. And then Alex Fischel joined the band in the like early 2010s um, as keyboard player, and he also plays guitar. Um, and then they've also had Gerardo Larios as a touring guitar and keyboardist. So the the band right now is Daniel, Eno, Pope, and Fischel with Larios on keyboard. And so I didn't know that. I, I don't know if you guys... We're aware of such there was so many lineup changes, but it's is essentially Brit Daniel and jim Jimino running the band. And so we're gonna we're gonna what we're gonna do with this series is we're gonna go through their nineties output and just discuss each of the uh records. We're also gonna talk about uh an EP and a single that the band released because they're kinda key to the to the story of Spoon in the nineties. And talk about uh, you know what we hear in these records that were indi- maybe indicators of where this band was going to go in the 2000s as far as becoming such a uh, important band. You know, Spoon, as was mentioned in um, Reed's article, were selected by Metacritic as the overall top artist of the 2000s. From 2000 to 2009, they had the best aggregate review number of all their all their records. So the word consistent comes up with. This band and their records. So let's talk about if these records were consistent, or if maybe they showed some you know early development that uh, needed to be refined. We did get some comments over at our Patreon page. That's Patreon.com forward slash Dig Me Out. Johnny Hooper said, "Love this band, and particularly this era of the band. Though Telefono sounds like it was inspired by more aggressive sounding bands." It wasn't long before Spoon found their signature sound with a series of sneaks and and the masterful soft effects EP. I had the privilege of catching them on the series of sneaks tour. And on that night, there were probably more people on stage than there were in the crowd. How things have changed. One of the most consistently rewarding bands in indie rock. (laughs) There's that word again, consistent. Mm -hmm. And then Keith Sawyer said, while in retrospect, Telefono does not sound like Spoon at all. You can debate that. It is the pinnacle, it is still the pinnacle of Pixie's homage rock, filled with just amazing energy, tempo changes, guitar tone, and brevity. They all really, they really pick up the baton and fling it into the stands. I was disappointed with the comparatively lifeless production on a series of sneaks. It mostly drains them of their patented urgency. I think the 90s ends before we get a real good example of their classic sound, Anticipation comes close but the dime store production holds it back interesting Jay I have heard you say at times that a series of sneaks is your favorite spoon album true
2: oh uh, yes that is true would you like to fight Keith Sawyer <laughs> over
1: his comments <laughs>
2: um I like telephone I, I I like um telephone a series of sneaks girls can tell and that's really the to me the the strongest Uh, era of the band i like the stuff after that but it's it sort of crosses a line into being much more polished and just a little bit different i think they become more influenced by the kinks and the Beatles and that sort of thing and i think the um the urgency of telephono is great and then i think a series of sneaks is just this middle period between going from being that kind of raw aggressive sound to trying to figure out maybe something different, you know, opening up the space a little bit more, trying some different textures and it just hits a right, a good spot for me. Plus it's the, the it's the album I discovered him on. Right. Most people, you know, have a, you know, their favorite is always going to be the, the album they discover a band on.
0: Also, um, guys, before we get too deep in this, and we just agree that we can call it Telefono. Whoa, really?
3: I mean, come on. That's a- well, like I've, tele- been, I've been saying Telefono forever. Um, well, maybe you, I grew up in South Texas. You didn't. That's oh, fair.
1: that's. <laughs> oh, I didn't ever thought about there being an alternate pronunciation. Telephone. Yep. Wait a minute.
2: Wait a minute. I live in Austin. I've never heard anybody say that.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I grew up <laughs> in McAllen. Come on. I'm way more south than you. Uh,
3: okay. What is telephono then? Like, what does that mean?
0: It's telephono. It's a telephone.
3: Wait. Oh. Oh. Really? you hey. just. This out. I'm falling. This is this is where my spoon expert thi- I, This is where I start to fall. I guess. No. Yeah. Did not know. Wow. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Hmm. This is like when Jay says pillow, and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "No, pillow—the thing you put your head on at night." I mean, I'm like, "Pillow?" <laughs> and
3: then,
0: then you realize Jay is actually talking about Pele, the uh, Brazilian soccer. <laughs> You're like, "Oh yeah. my god, I have no idea."
1: Reed, you actually, so in your rankings, you have, now I don't know how to say it, (laughs) Telefono ranked ninth out of the nine albums. Yep. So, and and just in terms of your ranking there, Mm -hmm. uh, give us just some insights into why you placed it there and just your overall feelings on this record. Uh, Not only just in terms of where, in the spoon discography, but like, you know, this came out. In um, 1996, it's been compared to the Pixies uh, over and over again. Just where this record falls for the band and in the decade in, in the 90s for uh, just the overall sort of placement of uh, uh, the sound. You know, the Pixies sound has been copied multiple times. You know, Nirvana obviously copied it as well. Just your overall thoughts on, on this record.
3: Sure. So I guess the thing with me with Spoon is that I I became a Spoon fan right around um Gaga 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 ga, came out, I guess in 2008 And so that you know, that was sort of my exposure to Spoon. And then I, I literally I kind of walked through their discography backwards, if that makes sense. So I, mm-hmm. I started with Gaga Gaga, ga, ga, then went to Gimme Fiction, then Kill the Moonlight, then Girls Can Tell, then these other two. And so in that way I feel like I as I listened to Spoon, it was sort of like I was peeling back the onion a little bit in terms of each record that I would listen to, since I was listening to it kind of a descending order, I was like peeling back all of the extra instrumentation that they would throw on on each release. And so by the time I got to a series of sneaks and telephono, those are just so bare bones compared to the rest of those, uh, the rest of their discography, which I think Jay kind of mentioned that, you know, these were sort of these um, very dry, very hard, normal kind of alt rock Records where the other stuff. I feel like there was so much influence from the Kinks, from Prince, from um, the other bands that Brit Daniel loved so much. And so Telephono to me, it just maybe because I'd listened to the band's discography in that descending order, it just always sounded so plain. It just always sounded so, I don't know, just too, just so aggressive, too. Just too aggressive. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but that is the only record that Britt Daniels says or sings the lyric, like, fuck. That is the only record in Spoon's discography where he ever utters the word fuck, ever. And to me, that's just such a a kind of a signpost of what they were trying to go for, where it's this like overly aggressive kind of meathead alt rock, you know, very riffs first, songwriting later. And that's okay, but I feel like that's never been Spoon's strength. You know, and there are certainly moments on Telefono that I think are great. But I mean, the record overall has just never really held up or, or showed as much as the other um, albums in the discography do. And I would even say, you know, the Pixies influence thing. Like, yeah, there's a lot of song structures on Telephone or that are that kind of quiet, loud, quiet dynamic. And they do it well, but I feel like they don't really innovate on it. You know, to me, it's yeah. always been a very clearly like this is this is who we're, we're listening to and this is what we're doing. But we're doing it in the exact same way that you've heard before.
1: Yeah, when I was listening back to it recently, it wasn't just the loud, quiet thing, but even the way he delivers lines, yeah. his cadence, Brit Daniel has evolved into a very specific singer who has a very specific delivery. And the way that he enunciates is very specific to him. And you can hear him listening to Pixie's songs. And it's mm-hmm. spitting out like when you listen to like the song theme to Wendell Stivers, which is a one you know, just under two minute, like it has surf guitar as if it's off of you know, uh, what's the Pixies album? Uh, is it Cecilia Ann or or not the album but song? But like there's a you know, they used surf guitar, you're thinking of Surfer Rosa, Surfer Rosa. They, they use surf guitar riffs often, that Dick Dale style, you know, quick picking guitar riff. I mean, the song is called Theme to Wendell Stivers, and, and there's a Pixie song called Tony's Theme. You know, there's just like, there's all sorts of little, and and not that it's a complete ripoff of the band. It's just they're clearly such a big influence. You know, I, when I was I'm just reading the song titles, it was like, oh, there's a song called Dismember instead of Debaser. You know, there's just like, there's all sorts of little things here and there that if I had never heard the Pixies, I would never pick up on any of that stuff. But having hurt having been a, a huge Pixies fan, like so much of it in terms of his phrasing, in terms of the way that Joey Santiago plays like you know two dissonant notes back and forth, uh, you know, very simply, but uses as a counter to create tension with the vocal. Uh, there's just there's always, you know, very something very specific that the Pixies do that they picked up on that had me like kind of just kind of laughing at like, Wow, it's 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 clear that they were talented, but they just didn't know how to really deliver their own style at this point. Which, um, you know, to their benefit, I mean, this was released on Merge, and or excuse me, it was released on Matador and then re-released on Merge. But you know, they, it was good enough to get Matador's attention. It wasn't like any Matador was just signing anybody in the mid '90s. I mean, they were. A, a tastemaker, you know, label at this point
0: by the late '90s, you could make an argument that Matador was signing to about everybody,
1: which might have turned
0: into Spoon's um, major label fiasco.
1: Right. I, I wanted to ask you, Jay, since you're not a big Pixies fan, yeah, um, was this maybe more, or at, at least at the time, I, I'm sure you've listened to more Pixies just randomly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, over time, did you start to pick up on? The Pixies yes. influence? Okay. Yeah, yeah. But
2: I still think there's, um, I still think like a song like Nefarious, I, I don't know that that sounds like the Pixies at all. all. To me, that sounds uh, more like Tom Petty. So like I, I'm hearing like some of the, that and like The um, Government Darling, mm-hmm. I'm hearing more of like, like almost a classic rock core to some of the stuff. When I Um, hear it the first time, but done in a very different approach in terms of production and energy. Um, So, yeah, obviously now I can, you know, I mean, Dismember sounds like exactly like a Pixie song. Um, So now I hear it. But at the time I didn't. um, and It didn't color how I appreciated the record at the time.
1: Huh. That's interesting. When I heard Nefarious, I did not make that connection. What it sounded like to me was uh, when he's I I don't I assume it's britt daniel doing the or maybe it's andy mcguire who's doing the 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 high harmony on that song but it sounded like a kim deal backing vocal like when kim deal would would double frank black which was not all that often but that's that's more where it sounded like to me than more more pixies-esque sound gotcha
2: yeah, I, I mean I can hear that in terms of how they do the harmonies. But as a song, like I just think that's a, just a straight up pop rock song at, at its core. The way it's presented might be in an alt not, you know, an alt-rock nineties fashion, but if you were to just play that on an acoustic guitar, I mean I could like I said, I could definitely hear Tom Petty doing that song.
1: Right.
0: She was smoking up all the cigarettes. i putting them out in his hands. You think this hurts now, kid? Well Just wait till later, man This is fucking torture to me. It's fucking torture, the barriers
1: One oddball note about this album track nine Towner is a cover of a band called A Miniature. Jay, we actually reviewed Oh wow, yeah. A miniatures uh 19, I think ninety-five album, Merc Time Cruiser. Yeah. I I was completely like caught off guard <laughs> that they covered a miniature song. I'm like I don't think anybody listened to or not that many people. Yeah. I don't know how we even came across that album to review it, but randomly that shows up here as a cover. So there you go. This is the second week in a row where we've had random covers show up on records. Last week it was the fall. This week it's spoon. Or two weeks ago it was the fall. So the band isn't is, you know, it puts out their first record. It it does okay in terms of it gets a fairly solid review uh from AllMusic. It it gets a negative review, two and a half out of five stars from Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. But Matador says, let's put out an EP. So they, in 1997, released the Soft Effects EP. And, I, you know, listening back to this one, I went, oh, I'm starting to hear where where Spoon becomes Spoon. You know, just putting it on and listening to Mountain to Sound. I was like, that to me is a spoon song and I'll explain why, but uh Reed, you also mentioned about that song and, and this EP when we were exchanging messages. So give me your, you know, recollections on, or I know it didn't get included in the list cause it's not an album, but just your, your thoughts on this EP and the overall nineties output of spoon.
3: Yeah. So I would say, I don't know if this is controversial or not among spoon, uh, Devotees, but I love the soft effects EP. In fact, I would probably say that I love the soft effects EP much more than a series of sneaks or telephono. For me, the soft effects EP is special because Spoon had not quite merged into the Spoon that we know. And when I say the Spoon that we know, I mean the Spoon that really started on Girls Can Tell where that um, sort of Beatles-esque Kinks influence was so abundant and obvious. But what I love about this EP is that I feel like, you know, whatever went down during Telephono, it seems like they turned down the amps a little bit. It seems that they were like, hey, we don't need to throw our listeners into a brick wall every time they turn into our albums. What if we do something a little more subtle? And what I love about each track is that it feels so distinct. Like instead of being this um, sort of wall of of gnashing guitar, like I feel like Telephono is. Soft Effects is you know you you start with Mountain of Sound, which is this building garage basher. To me, it's one of Spoon's probably heaviest songs, and it, just kind of that that good quintessential '90s Spoon is Mountain of Sound for me. Other four tracks are all wildly different. Um, Waiting for the Kid to Come Out is this weird, funny kind of slacker rock song. I could see the dude is way spaced out, very pavement to me. Um, Get Out the State is this overblown distortion-like thing. Probably my least favorite song on there, but distinct for sure. And then Lost Leaders to me is one of the most perfect moments of Spoon perfecting um, power pop. Like that is, I think, one of my favorite songs. And I was looking at the lyrics today and really trying to kind of go through them, and I realized that I don't know if you guys knew this, but Lost Leaders is about African American revolutionist Fred Hampton.
1: Oh no, I didn't realize yeah. that.
3: Yeah, he he mentions Fred Hampton in kind of the beginning verses, and then at the end, um, Fred Hampton was uh, there, he was killed during a raid by the FBI. And the closing line of Lost Leaders is: "Freddie tried to change their ways till he got some bullet holes. Now he lives in outer space." which like, holy shit, like for, you know, t- to me, the band that was kind of singing these angry, romantically torn up songs on Telefono, or Telefono, excuse me, then to kind of switch into this weird spacey song about this uh, executed African-American revolutionist, I'm like, hello, there's a huge change here. So yeah, that's that's sort of my summary of soft effects. I love it. It's a perfect little nugget for anyone who's wanting to kind of I think explored the Spoon '90s discography, but doesn't really know where to start.
1: Jay, you introduced me to Spoon on "Girls Can Tell." I think you got the record and shared it with me. And when mm-hmm. I listened to this EP, when I heard "Mountain to Sound," I was like, "This is the primer for Fitted Shirt." Yeah. Like, oh, that like driving repetitive rhythm is like this is the raw mm-hmm. version of that song that became. I, I, you know, that's where I fell in love with the band was on Girls Can Tell, and especially like a song like that. Yeah, and that's to me that rhythm, the drum
2: guitar relationship on both of those songs. That's that's Led Zeppelin. You know, to me that's the the way that Jimmy Page and um, uh, John Bonham play off of each other, which is interesting to hear in this band. And when I heard Fitted Shirt, I didn't, I didn't find that with that right away. Just yeah, that, like it's that that groove. The, the, the way that they're able to kind of have those two instruments locked up in a way that's very unique. I didn't hear soft effects until later. Um, I didn't get it initially when I got... Uh, I'm saying telephono, I'm sorry. And <laughs> series of sneaks. I don't remember when I heard it, but it was a little later when I got more of the catalog. And um, then I made the connection of, okay, this is sort of the origin of them finding that groove. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not a huge of this i think just because like i said those the three in the order i found them in are the ones that i identify strongest with but i can definitely see this as a an important transition for them um from one record to the next
1: jim is this is this a uh, an ep that you've checked out and you have you know thoughts on in terms of the development of spoon in the 90s
0: the ep not so much i was actually thinking about um the first album Telefono. <laughs> um, and the fact that um on the first song, um it they, they sound like sort of a carbon copy of all I, of other indie, indie bands. But um the second and third song is where you get the very, very first notions of Brits um vocal delivery, which I can only call um in I, I mean this in a loving way, a coked out bowie just sort of presence and i think that those those are the two songs that i'm like oh i see where spoon's going and yes it took them a while to get there because that first album is super uneven the second album is even more uneven and i know we'll get to it but the kiss off uh, ep or double-sided single was amazing and it is not until the early aughts. That they seem to finally figure out who they want to be. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Well, and this is a rare occasion of a band that's able to do that. I mean, you think about so many bands in the '90s that self-produced a record, it got you know picked up by a major label because maybe a local radio station was playing a song. They got to, they got to remaster it or or remix it or something and add some songs. They throw out that record. Hopefully, one single hits. And then they get maybe a follow up record if they're lucky, and then if they're you know not, they just get dropped and we never hear from them again. But this is Spoon is almost a seventies band in the respect that they they got time to develop. Now they got bounced around, you know. As, after this, they they leave Matador for next album, which was going to be which is a, a series of sneaks. That's where, like, with Jay, I think this is where a lot of people maybe discover the band because they're on a major label, because they're, you know, getting more exposure. But still, this is more of a development record in terms of when you look at the overall catalog of of Spoon, in terms of refining the sound of of Britt Daniel finding his voice. And that didn't really happen a lot in the 90s. You didn't get a lot of time to develop your sound in, in, in the way that, like, so many bands of previous decades did
2: do, do we have a does anybody know the history on how they got to electra did the soft effects EP play a role in that like i guess what did? does anybody know what electra thought they were getting with this band if you listen to the first lp and the first ep uh, um, Jay.
0: actually this was when electra was signing everybody under the right? sun in the um early 90s um it's the same time they were like signing tuscadero like, anybody from the Teen Beat label... Afghan wigs. Yeah, they were just they were just like, we want to suck everybody in. I mean, the same way that Capitol was, like, picking up Triple S Action and a bunch of other bands. And Electra I mean,
1: had had the Pixies. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, this is the new Pixies. Gotcha. You can argue about what exactly they were really getting in terms yeah. of uh, of the band. But we've said it before on, in, in past episodes... There's a reason why, among musicians, Elektra earned the um, the nickname Nick Lectra. Because, <laughs> because they were signing a lot of people and throwing a lot of music out there, but was not really supporting it. And in this case, they released this in ap- end, the end of April of 1998. It got good reviews. Rolling Stone, got a favorable review. All Music, Other Places... Stylus Magazine. Anybody remember Stylus Magazine? It got an A. Um, I'm sure if we did more research on reviews, it would...
0: Oh, my God. At some point, you're going to talk about Reagan Magazine, too.
1: (laughs) Possibly. What did... uh, I don't know what the AP gave it. i have to look that up. But it got positive reviews. It actually managed... I think they released a single or two off this record. I think Car Radio, the single... Or maybe it was, well, thirty gallon tank was pre pre released before this album came out uh, as like a preview EP. I, mean, I think Car Radio got released as a single, or Metal Detector might have been another one. But here's the question: It got brought up during our comments from patron, our patrons, uh, was specifically Keith Sawyer. Is the produ- What's the production due to this record? I, you know, I didn't think about it until Keith said it. But there's a bit of a I don't know, a flatness to this record. It's, you know, as as Pixie's aping as the first record is, it's pretty, I think, aggressive sounding and in, and kind of vibrant in that way, that it it really gets in your face. Whereas there is a bit more of like a smoothing out with this record where it's not quite as, it's not as distinctive as uh, maybe the first record is or what they would become later on. I think it's
2: distinctive. You might not like it. Um, yeah. Burt Daniels is on record as um, admitting that they drove uh, this record to be as dry as possible. So they fought with the producer to remove any reverb, any sense of a room. They really wanted that super dry, unaffected sound. Now, I, I happen to like it a lot. I think it connects with me as a as a somebody who has, you know, recorded music, four-track music, like there's a sense of, if you've created music, familiarity to it. Um, and and it, it just makes, it, it. when I listen to this, not only do I like the songs, and you know, I, I think it sounds great, but it also inspires me to create music. Just because mm-hmm. I can, you know what I mean, the dryness of it, there's right. just like this immediacy to it that uh, sounds like a four-track but well, a good four-track. Jay, Jay, since
0: you say that, it actually kind of makes sense, because there's also a very Steve Albini-esque vibe to the album, like mm. stripped down dry. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like um, Jim Eno himself, like as he's produced later Spoon albums, that's kind of the ethos he goes for. So I feel like they were just feeling themselves out. I'm not sure if the producer is the right guy to do it with them, but... I mean I, I do think that there are early earmarks of they're gonna have
1: Yeah, I think a song like the Minor Tough is a is a good example of like you hear that song and the way that they utilize the bass in that song is a is a good indicator of the way that they would utilize bass on like the next record or the next two records.
2: Him turn hear him turn the guitar fuzz down. Yeah. You know, and it starts to open up space to do other things, like hear the bass or use a little bit of a keyboard or, you know, focus on the drums. So, yeah, I mean, you definitely hear this evolution of once you take that out of the mix and you've got all this space to do other
3: things with it. I was going to say, this record to me, and I, I would really love to know what you guys think of it, I think it's maybe a little long. Like, I feel like it, it meanders a little bit. And when I was thinking about that today, being like, all right, it meanders, what does that remind me of? This may be a super controversial statement, but it it kind of plays to me like a GBV album a little bit, like a Guided by Voices mm-hmm. album.
1: Yeah, I, I agree in the sense that it's only 33 minutes long, which normally we're like, yay, 33 minutes, because most albums in the 90s are like 20 minutes too long. But it's 14 songs, and like it seems like when you get to the back half of the record, it starts to lose a little bit of focus i i like advanced cassette the, the closing track but there's some other songs in the on the back end like quincy punk episode a couple other ones that are just they're not up to part of the first half of the record i guess and you know there a lot of short songs i think there's most of the rec most of this record is under three minutes these songs and some of them are a minute to a minute and a half so there's definitely a, a guided by voices vibe to some of these tracks as being sort of like just snippets of songs Mm -hmm. as opposed to actual fully developed ideas, which I'm not necessarily opposed to. I mean, I like when, you know, Bob Pollard just writes a verse and a chorus and then gets out in 90 seconds. But at this point, Britannia was not writing the same sort of melodies that Bob Pollard could get away with when he was at his prime. I don't know that he's still doing that sort of level of songwriting but in the 90s you know whether it was on Alien Lanes or B-1000 he could get away with that kind of stuff whereas I think Rick Daniel is still figuring it out on this record you know like a song like Car Radio that could easily be it's a minute and a half record do a lot of interesting stuff on that song but then it it kind of feels like they like don't really know where to take the song like they just sort of repeat a part and then make it quiet and then you know, there's like I feel like that needed some more tinkering. And there's a couple other songs like that where I'm just like, I wish you kinda of guys had, had maybe spent a little more time working on the song because it was an interesting idea, but I don't know. Am I am I alone in that?
3: Idea? No, I I totally agree. Espe- car radio, I really like what you said about like it seems to kind of go from sort of this one rhythm to this kind of quieter thing, then it jumps back up. Like, it doesn't really know what it's doing. I've always, whenever I've listened to the song, I'm like, I like it, but there's something that's sort of stopping me from loving it. And I feel like you just explained it really, really well. Another song that I've always loved from a series of sneaks is the 52nd. I think probably the shortest song on this track list is Chloroform. Mm-hmm. Um, because it to me, it does have that really sweet sort of Bob Pollard melody, but it, it kind of gets in, gets out, and I'm left, you know, whenever the 30th or 40th anniversary edition of this album is released, if that happens, I really want there to be somewhere in the spoon vault this three minute fully fleshed out version of Chloroform. Cause I feel like the nugget that he gives us is so good, but I'm always left wanting more of that specific song. Cause I just think his his melody in that song is so sweet, so good. And you know, in terms of the GBV thing. To me, just the kind of genre or rock genre sort of experimentation that he does, um, that's always sort of kind of stunk of the GBV strain to me because like you have power pop like utilitarian and you're not in metal school and sort of that experimental lo-fi with staring at the board and chloroform and then the full-on punk of 30-gallon, June's Foreign Spell, Quincy Punk. Uh, and then, kind of the subdued post punky minor tough reservations, like it seems like we're telephono, which is the tenth time we've used that word in this whole thing, um <laughs> where that was sort of this like mean, nasty like look we are we're in the nineties and with this is still the grunge era, and this is who we are. I feel like this is Brit being like, all right, what else can we do? like what are the other modes and and paints that we can work with And yeah, I mean, I think a series of sneaks is it's a fun listen it's good but i've just never understood the like i feel like there are a lot of spoon fans who really do stand behind it and i'm like i get it i see what's there but when i hear the insane experimentation of something like kill the moonlight or gimme fiction i've just i've never really thought it held up as well
1: jay jim thoughts on our
3: well you guys are both wrong
1: (laughs) okay all right good to know good to know
2: no i get it i get it um I don't know. I just think there's some brilliant moments on here. I think Metal Detector is, it's one of those songs that it's it's so simple, but there's just something about um, the feeling. Like, they they get to this vibe in that song that just the right tempo and the right chord selection, um, the right instruments, and it just creates something unique. And at the time, I had never heard anything like it. So... I think, um, yeah, the the I'm with you, Tim. You know, there's some stuff where they start to experiment towards the second half of the record. I think Advanced Cassette is fantastic. I like Car Radio quite a bit, but there is a section between June's Foreign Spell and uh, Advanced Cassette where the you know the it gets a little bit off the rails, but it's only 33 minutes, so I guess that's where I will get to it. Like, why did this band sort of endures and maybe why they're considered consistent, but you know, it's it's not a slog to get through it. You know, we've mm-hmm. reviewed a lot of albums that have long experimental passages, and it's a 70-minute a record or a 80-minute record, and you're just – it's unbearable. Um, so I, I think just because this is so brief, um, the experiments I, I can endure.
0: Which kind of makes the, the point I would have made myself, which is um, Spoon in the 90s is definitely a band finding their voice. Yeah, Like, they they haven't gotten there yet. They're figuring it out. Um, It's kind of thrilling to hear them try to figure out what's going to work and what's not. But at the same time, they eventually did. If anything, I almost think of the band in the 90s as one of the last vestiges of a band actually able to find a voice. I mean, can you imagine, like, going through two to three albums and going, I'm not sure what we're doing yet, and still touring and anybody buying anything you sold.
2: Yeah. And they explore it like say 30 gallon tank. I mean, that's obviously them exploring rhythm and looking at maybe electronic music and trying to figure out what can we do that's, you know, similar to that in terms of song structure, but it's done in a way where, it still sounds like them in terms of the production and the overall approach to the the sounds and the tones um, and the guitar playing and all that. So when they do experiment, I feel like I can, at least as a listener, I can easily go along with those experiments. Sometimes when a hmm. when band's experiment, it sounds so dramatic, or they bring in some new instrument or something that's just so out of left field that it's it breaks the journey for me and I just can't go along with it. Um, whereas with them, I feel like they stick to this basic formula, and then I they can kind of take me almost anywhere they want to go in terms of exploring different sounds. Um, so that's why I think maybe this the, the, the dry production uh, as well on this record that kind of pulls it all together, and and it makes sense for me.
3: Can I ask you guys about? So we've talked a little bit about Metal Detector here and there, which I feel like is a solid fan favorite um, Spoon song in general. But I feel like also sometimes maybe the song of this period that sticks out the most what is metal detector about for you guys like when you hear it lyrically what is he writing from the perspective of because i've heard a few different theories and i'd really like to know what you guys think that song is about
2: well he he talks about a bank robbery right and
3: yeah but i, I guess that's a metaphor for something for what i don't know mm. do you have theories i mean from from when I listen to it, whenever I put together that spoon ranking list thing, to me, it's yeah, it's the the bank robbery thing is is definitely there. And to me, it's always been someone who is walking into these different banks across the country or these different important places, maybe knowing that he the narrator, I guess, is walking into something that he can't beat. You know, he's walking into this bank or this situation that he is going to get taken down from. And he sort of resigned himself to that, and he's trying to kind of say, like, all right, you know, the metal detector's going off. I know it's going off. That's what the whole plan was. Now, you know, everybody's paying attention to me. I'm in sort of this moment where I am the focus. Um, how do I move on from there? How do I make this my moment? Um, that, 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 that's interesting, just because I had a completely different take on that song, which was constantly
0: um, Brit Daniel's going through a series of different relationships. And discarding them as he goes along. Okay. I mean, neither you nor I is right, but Right. Yeah. But I mean I just it's it's just a slightly different take. Like when you started describing it, it was the first time I even thought about it in that way. Well, but maybe just because I've seen I mean, it's it seems like he writes from a more personal um corner than most people expect. Mm-hmm. So I tend to view most of his songs as being semi uh, autobiographical. Okay.
2: Hmm. And with either meeting, I think the way that it's delivered with this, like, it's just so casual and confident. Just the way the whole song plays out, the way he sings it. That's another part of it that it just emotes cool. You know what I mean? It sounds like somebody who's just not trying, (laughs) but sounding awesome. I mean, that's the hardest thing in the world to do, but just the, the phrases and the way he's singing it and just how everything is just like, it's just there and just right.
1: Um,
0: isn't, isn't that what Spoon's really good at is just making everything um, that is actually complicated feel effortless.
1: Yeah. Well, in a way Definitely. that, that harkens back to our episode not too long ago on Jesus and Mary chain. Whereas they write these deceptively simple songs and it's really about this attitude of cool that they're able to deliver, through the vocals that are sound like slightly disaffected. And there's a, you know, there's a, a, you know, a coolness to it that most bands cannot pull off. And I feel like, you know, that's not a direct influence perhaps in terms of the sound of spoon, but in terms of the attitude of spoon, I feel like there's a connection there because I can <sighs> listen to, you know, just like honey or whatever off of uh you know psycho candy and get as much of that sort of disaffected laissez-faire vocal delivery as from jim reed or william reed as i do from brit daniel
0: yeah no you, you you're, you're the swagger
1: thing.
2: yeah and, and to reed's point when you drop an f-bomb it kind of breaks that you know? <laughs> yeah it, it becomes like now yeah. you're now you're angry right you went from being like whatever metal detectors ringing i'm walking out the door like i don't care to drop an f-bombs it's a totally different demeanor
3: yep and it, there's nothing to me that personifies the effortless cool of metal detector more than that closing um little acoustic guitar at the very end that pops up after the that kind of fizzy electronic effect that part is just always the I call that the hug of the song, you know, where I'm like, ah, there we go. Now you have my heart because you got that. It's just such a sweet little chord pattern to me.
1: have dropped any f-bombs on this record but they might have dropped some f-bombs after this record was released because they got dropped (laughs) electra dropped the band within four months of this album being released in part because the guy who chased them for a year and a half ron lafitte was canned and he said i'm gonna stick with this band you know he told them i'm gonna stick with your band through thick and thin and what have you and you know we're gonna make this happen, and then uh, he got canned, and was like, "All right, see you guys later." And the band got dropped, so they wrote uh, a single, two songs: "The Agony Lafitte" and "Lafitte Don't Fail Me Now." It was released on Saddle Creek uh, as a seven-inch in 1999. You know, there this isn't unusual. I mean, there have been other bands that have released songs criticizing record labels or the or the record industry. But to aim it so (laughs) blatantly at their at the guy who signed them at their A&R guy really is quite interesting, especially because, you know, and and maybe this this is the disaffected cool uh, sort of thing with with Brit Daniel. A lot of his stuff tends to be more, I don't know, you don't think it's writing. He's writing about something specific. And, And Jim, you said that some of the lyrics are more autobiographical than we we think. But these are super autobiographical. I mean, they're going after the guy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I mean um, most of Britt's lyrics are, um, they're autobiographical, but this is so to... Whereas right. this, is, this is basically a blow for blow of, oh, and this is how the label fucked me. Which
1: I don't know. I don't know who's, who else has done that. I mean, I can think of maybe, you know, a few Leonard Skinner's MCA. I, mean, I, feel, like,
0: I feel like maybe Lou Reed might have done something along those lines. Yeah. But I mean, I can't think of anybody that has that that has been as acerbic.
1: Neil Young, maybe.
0: Oh yeah, because mm. he really was not happy. How about that? Uh, this one's for you, commercial. Yeah,
1: yeah. Musically speaking, though, I feel like this starts to point actually starts to point in a direction. You know, Lafito Fail Me Now" is sort of like this jangly. I don't I don't know how you call it. A psychedelic pop song.
0: Oh, as 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 an acerbic kiss off, it's one of the catchiest songs I've heard in a long time.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an oddball, but it's an oddball that musically fits in. You know, musically and melodically fits in with where they were going, and and sort of uh, as a primer for where you would hear what you would hear on Girls Can Tell, that where they would sort of restrain the sound and limit the um, the noise that we heard on the first and second records, um, it actually does a good job of like sort of telling you, Oh, this is, this is the direction that spoon's going with a bit more restraint musically and, and a bit more, I don't know what we would call it, but just dialing it down.
2: And the, the backup vocals, I mean, start to show this maturity and sophistication that wasn't there before. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to hear, I'm curious to know if the, if Ron Lafitte ever heard this or heard at the time and what his thoughts were about, uh, not the fact that they did the songs, but the fact that uh, where the band was going, and th- could could he have expected them to be able to do something like this?
3: I gotta imagine I think, somebody tracked him down. I think it says a lot, though, that we are probably only discussing Ron Lafitte because of these two songs. Like I know Ron Lafitte out of no other venue other than these two songs. You know what I'm right. saying? Like,
1: <laughs> how many A and R guys do you know from the 90s? Yeah. Not many. Clive Davis. That's
3: like, like I mean
2: and what, and what an awesome coincidence that his last name was worked so well. Yeah. <laughs> going to say well, if, you know if it's Johnson what do you do with that? Right. I was going to
0: say most inner people from the 90s are um unemployed.
1: Right. Yeah, there's not many left. So we ended a decade with this with this release. Then they would go into the 2000s and they would have there's the Love Ways EP and then you get Girls Can Tell, you get Kill the Moonlight get Gimme Fiction, on and on and on through there. Is it safe to say, I mean, I think as the band evolved in the 90s, Brit Daniel found his voice, and that to me is the key to Spoon, is him finding his voice. And then also Jim Eno figuring out on his end of it, because it's, it's those two guys, from a production standpoint, really sort of honing in on what they do well, which is rhythm and melody. And I think from that point on, even though they've explored different sounds on each of the records and, and expanded and contracted the sound in different ways, it's really always been about melody and rhythm going forward for everything. If you break down what songs work and which songs don't, Britt Daniels figured out a, a pop melody in the, in the vein of, like has been mentioned, the Kinks and the Beatles and, and that sort of thing. Um with a little bit of prints thrown in here and there. They've always sort of found their way to being this insanely consistent band. Um of the two thousands so. records. Let me ask you guys if what what is your pick for your favorite spoon record? Jay, I'm gonna start with you. Girls can tell. Okay. Read what's your favorite 2000s spoon record?
3: I would have to say probably Gimme Fiction. Okay. Jim?
0: I'm going to go with Gimme Fiction because, again, that's when uh Britt perfected the coked-out Bowie delivery. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I'm going to go with Kill the Moonlight. I really yeah. love that record. What? Great yeah. record. Great yeah. record. I love the stripped-down beatbox production of some of those songs. I think that... Nothing That's, else sounded like that.
0: Dude, dude, dude. I don't usually say somebody's wrong, but I think you're wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I love Gimme Fiction. I don't think they've made a bad record overall. Some don't stick with me as much as other ones. Like, Transference doesn't stick with me no. as as much as some of the other records.
0: No. However, um, based on what you were talking about earlier, I will completely co-sign you because I kind of touched upon it. I do think the 90s Spoon was a version of um, Brit finding his voice and Eno finding his production-like chops. Yep. And it was, it was the early aughts when they, when they just started clicking and you were like, well, this is, <laughs> you, this is undeniable. Yeah. And then next thing you know, uh, for some reason, Lolo Blues is putting one on the main stage.
3: Yeah.
1: There you go. The biggest, most consistent band in America. Wait a minute. I thought that was the national. (laughs) Oh, well, we can debate that. (laughs) Totally, totally kidding. What other bands? Let me ask you guys. We're going to be doing this. What band should we be talking about for future episodes? The obvious one that I'm going to throw out is Death Cab for Cutie. They started in the 90s, but a, a couple of records... Kind of under the radar, and then became the OC band for the uh, what was the what was the Peach Pit of the OC? Was it the or or did they um, play? I think I think that was just called the the Wrong Pit. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Orange Pit. <laughs> but are are these standard bearers of uh, of pop rock? I guess for the two thousands, other than the Foo Fighters, so. Who, who else? Fighters is good. Foo, Foo, Foo Fighters. But the Foo, Foo Fighters were already kind of huge in the '90s. They, say, they weren't on we the were radar. Saying, you um,
0: brought up Muse, who I think I agree. Yeah. Is another one of those under the radar '90s bands that blew up in the '00s.
2: Didn't um didn't Ben Folds not break through until after the, the '90s? No,
0: no, his uh, big singles were like '90. 596 yeah brick
1: oh. brick still stands i think as their as the biggest now no, I mean, as I, a cultural it, force it, him being on not, like the voice and or not the voice uh what was the show he was on
0: uh i think american Idol or something terrible oh, um
2: yeah i'm I'm looking for the artist where it's like everybody knows who they are or at least okay anybody who's remotely interested in music would know who they are here's oh you here's mean, one you mean you mean kelly clarkson well close well yeah what about jimmy Eat world was another one i thought of too
1: no that's a good one because although you know they have respected albums in the 90s they weren't necessarily huge radio albums but then the self-titled or bleed american as it was originally known did not come out until 2001 yeah and that's what put them on the map commercially let me throw one out to you Link 182
3: huh wait who's
1: clicking
0: on the keyboard to figure out what <laughs> <laughs> it's what we do came because
1: take off your jacket and pants came out in 2001 yeah and i yeah. know i mean i know they had a successful career but that's the one that has the rock show stay together yep. for the kids i mean that's where i heard them really for the first time because i was not listening to pop punk in the 90s yeah
2: i would kind of put them with uh uh like the white stripes where they only had one record in the 90s but they did form in 97
1: no Blit so Two had three records in the 90s oh okay cheshire cat 95 dude ranch 97 enema of the state in 99 in 99 oh well yeah they would definitely so be. Guys, it.
0: you're all missing the obvious um front runner uh-oh who are we missing it's Justin Timberlake because I mean, in sync, other albums from the '90s, and he did not break until the early odds. True. Almost, who does not want to cry me a
1: river? <laughs> what if I told you that I prefer '90s Justin Timberlake to? Uh... No, I'm just kidding. Um... I'd, I'd I'd have to ask you, what kind of shoes are you wearing right now, <laughs>
0: and, and just how old are those Nikes?
1: No, I, I I appreciate the justified, and even the sexy back. I, I man of the woods left me cold. I'm not gonna lie, I'm not care for that oh, record. Oh no, no, I
0: think we can all agree as uh, music critics, writers, um, actually just pure lovers of music. No, that that album sucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I was genuinely hoping he was gonna make like some sort of a country influenced hip hop record or something like that. Like, really oh, absolutely. go for it. And then it was not. And then
3: Post Malone did it, and we were like, oh, okay. Well, there you go. It just is what it is. (laughs) And then we were like, oh, my God, Malone did it? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Any other bands I'm forgetting? Yeah.
3: I thought um, maybe the Mountain Goats. Ah. Mountain Goats, All Hail West Texas, was released in 2002, and they had several albums before that that I feel like didn't quite catch. What that album
0: so, did. So while I love the Mountain Goats, I'm not sure that you could actually say they ever broke through.
3: Yeah, that's
1: that's why I'm wondering if they actually made it to the level of a spoon. Okay. Who, who get yeah. like regular like, like, like we haven't really set any criteria yet, so this is just all pure speculation. But um yeah, that's a that would be an interesting one. Or a, I mean or the fact the fact that last Mountain Goats album had a whole
3: uh thesis around being goth, means they really haven't broken through <laughs> that's fair yeah uh what about did we mention the national already well no. sort of in passing but i guess they
1: would be i think but i did but <laughs> yeah i guess i guess that would be one that would be relevant i i guess you have to define what what the success in success is as far as in the 90s whether it's purely you know album sales and TV placements and stuff like that. Or then you look at a band like the Get Up Kids, who had you know two records in the 90s and then two records in the 2000s, are definitely an, a hugely influential band on, you know, I guess, I guess 2000s emo.
2: Maybe we could just say that their biggest success is in the 2000s, but they started in the 90s, and then you could open it up to almost a lot of bands.
3: I'm not even sure. Did the Nationals start in the 90s? I think... Uh I think that first self self-titled was maybe ninety nine so maybe it was the tail end. So it was like the very tail end, yeah, I mean, I booked
0: them in Chicago at a um <laughs> I, I, I kid you not a garage in like ninety five and I thought there were two on their first album, but they might have had obviously one in the early or late nineties
1: so they actually formed in nineteen ninety one but they didn't put out an album until 2001. What? Holy
3: shit. Really? Jesus
1: Christ. Yeah, they were together for 10 years before they put out a record. Okay. I take back everything bad I ever said about the National. Um, <laughs> they did put out. Um, no, I'm, I was looking back. So, yeah, they. Well, you got to remember, like, they have brothers in the band. So they could have been playing music in their... like, bedroom together and and considered that being the national uh but matt berenger and and scott devendorf met in 1991 at university of cincinnati and um that's where they also met a couple other guys and that's where they formed well they formed a band it was called nancy and that was before the band was together the before before they technically became the national they did release an album under that name. So in 99, they changed it to the national and that's where the national. So I guess you could say the national quote unquote started in 1999, but the, the seeds were planted in 1991. Gotcha. So, wow. so technically they wouldn't count for this particular endeavor that we're, we're undertaking. So, I'm gonna throw it out there to our listeners. They can leave us suggestions for future Origins episodes, bands that started in the '90s under the radar and then became uh, big bands in the 2000s. That uh, we have yet to define what that means, but basically they've had some sort of a cultural or you know record sales impact in the uh, in the 2000s. But with you know some sort of a showing in the at least one album I'm gonna have to say. At least you have to make one put out one record in the nineties for a qualification. Preferably two, so we don't have a short episode.
2: God, I hate to say this, but depending on the definition, could Weezer fit
3: into this?
1: Whoa. Oh my God.
3: <laughs> oh
1: my God. You just blew my mind, Jay.
3: But like, with Weezer, that self titled debut, like that. That wasn't was. under the
1: radar. That wasn't under the radar.
3: Yeah. But the
2: biggest hits are like in the 2000s, aren't they? Hash player Beverly Hills. Shut up. <laughs> that's
1: They're when they started
2: good. playing arenas.
1: You stop talking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that true? Is that really where their biggest singles are? I think so. Is right? Beverly Hills their biggest single? Uh, yeah. No. I'm going to load the shotgun into my mouth right now if that's the, if that's the case. <laughs> Absolutely not.
0: First of all, we all know um, Sweater Song is probably the biggest single. Beverly Hills is not.
2: What if it's Pork and
1: Beans? It's
2: Peak Position. Oh, no. It was number 10 (laughs) in the Billboard Top 100. It was number one for Hot Modern Tracks. Let's see. Let's see where. uh,
1: Putting the shells in right now. Where your
2: precious Sweater Song (laughs) came in.
1: It won a Grammy. Yeah, I I think they're disqualified because they won a. Wait, Grammy Grammy in the 90s or 2000s?
2: Uh, Beverly Hills won a Grammy. No,
1: damn it! Fuck the Grammys.
2: I'm sorry. It was nominated for Best Rock Song. Pork and Beans won a Grammy for Best Music Video.
1: What?
0: At, at, at which point can we just shut this podcast down? We can- <laughs> we're <laughs> done.
1: <laughs> we have ended the podcast. We're we're not doing this anymore. I'm so broken right now by this whole Weezer fiasco.
2: Buddy Holly. Let's see. Only made it to number 18. So Beverly Hills charted higher than, than buddy Holly.
3: Well, guys, thank you so much for inviting me to be on the the last episode of this podcast. I really appreciate it. It's great.
1: Somebody play taps.
0: We're all going to share the um, communal shotgun to kill ourselves.
1: Oh my God.
0: (laughs) Done and done.
1: Oh my God. Okay. So, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap this up right now. We're gonna stop before we get any deeper into like, the hole. Like we're gonna wrap this
0: up in tears.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, Jim, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, Tankboy.us.
0: That's
3: pretty much it.
1: Okay. Reed, where should people go to uh, follow along with your writings?
3: They can follow along at uh, on Twitter on at read Strength. Um, I write pieces for Paste occasionally, Flood Magazine, um just whoever will have me. So, so yeah, Twitter's probably the best central focus spot.
2: Excellent. And uh to, to just top this off, Sweater Song only made it to number 57 on the Billboard Top 100.
1: <sighs> Shut your mouth. Stop talking.
2: <laughs> Not even close.
1: Oh my god. I don't want to know anything about anything anymore.
2: <laughs> so the next episode of this is going to be Weezer. <laughs> you bastard. I mean, we'll, but we'll get to talk about the good records. It's true.
1: It's true. Where did El Scorcho end up? Never mind. I don't want to know. <laughs> don't know. Yeah. Never mind. Okay. I want to remind people. you Yeah. I want to remind people you can go to iTunes, leave us some positive uh, feedback. You know, the four of the five stars. We'd appreciate it. And then you can join us at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash dig me out to get bonus content, to vote in our polls, to get entered into our quarterly contest, our giveaways, and all that fun stuff. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We thank our guests for joining us, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
3: Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit
0: www. Patreon.com forward slash dig out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. <laughs>